Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Dar Jamail. Dar is a former journalist and you will not believe the story of how he got into journalism. He was one of the people reporting from the ground in the Iraq war for a couple of years, really following the story closely. After that, he then did a lot of reporting on the climate crisis. And Dar joins me to have a phenomenal conversation about what is wrong with mainstream media and how to reform it. This is a deep dive into the theory of journalism, that it should be the fourth estate of a democratic society, that it should be about informing citizens, and that perhaps under a capitalist system, I think Dar and I would both say definitely under a capitalist system, you cannot have a for-profit mainstream media whose main goal is to inform the public. And that is why not only have we dipped into the age of disinformation, where people are completely unaware of what kinds of decisions to make, and therefore disempowered and disengaged, it also means that considering the climate crisis, we are so far from taking the action that we need to. And a huge part of that is because not only do we have people in power that are refusing to acknowledge the situation as it is, but also because we have a media that will not tell the truth. This is a fascinating episode. I cannot wait for you all to listen. And a shout out to any of my students who are listening. I hope you all found this equally informative. We are going to be talking about it in class. <laughs> if you all enjoy the episode, please share it far and wide. This kind of information is gold dust. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. Dar, I am so thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you for making time for Planet Critical. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. There are so many questions that I want to ask you as a journalist, of course, Um and I recently started teaching um, now journalism lecturer as well. And so I was thinking about my students all day in the run up to this interview as well, thinking what they would like to know. Um, so because of that, could you really get into the detail of your career um, leading up to uh, your book that came out in April 2022? Um, because I think especially for young people that are in love with the trade to get an idea of where somebody comes from and how they pulled it off yeah. <laughs> it's very important yeah sure well i, I had an extremely non-traditional way to get into the trade um it, at least certainly at the time um i was essentially mm -hmm. uh really really blown away by the propaganda around the iraq war in the u.s also in the uk mm -hmm. uh you know the the so-called weapons of mass destruction yeah. which were of course uh never existent and um so i was completely outraged at the um just absolute absence of of legitimate journalism for the most part leading up to and then during the invasion so i basically set myself to a rock uh i i went in uh, i had one contact and basically got an interpreter and just started writing what essentially was a blog 
uh, posting it on an internet site that oh was uh, free, but uh, several of the mainstream outlets were using it for information. And then doing that for a few weeks, I started to get picked up to do some freelance uh, radio work. And so that's essentially how I started out mm -hmm. as a reporter. And then that went on to turn into uh, writing oh, for... Oh, hold on, hold, yeah. hold on, hold on, hold on. You were not a journalist beforehand and you just took yourself off to Iraq once the war had begun because you didn't think that there was accurate reporting uh, being done in the West. Right. That's the non-traditional part. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh my God, what were you doing before? <laughs> um, mostly I was uh, working in Denali National Park, doing helping uh, the park service do rescues and a little bit of guiding. And then uh, in the off season, I was actually doing, uh, I, I was a show social worker. So yeah, it was a bit of a leap. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> a bit yeah. of a leap. That is an understatement. <laughs> that is incredible. Good for you. Yeah, wow, I, I, sorry for interrupting. Um, no, no, it's fine. It, it, I it, hadn't quite clocked that. In that sense, it was though uh, easy, the easy part. What made uh, becoming a journalist that way easy was I literally had thrown myself into what was the biggest story every day for at least mm. a couple of years. And so, and being one of the mm. only American independent reporters in Iraq, uh, it became increasingly easy I mean, I was, I never even had to pitch stores. I had outlets from around the world contacting me. So it, that was the hard part was wow. being in a war zone and, uh, seeing what you see in a war zone. The easy mm. part was, uh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't write enough stories. So I'm absolutely jumping the gun here because I recognized that I asked you to explain your career and then I stopped you at the very first, <laughs> the very first part of it. But given that you went out to combat the sort of propaganda model and then papers and broadcasters were approaching you for stories. Did you find that they were willing to broadcast um, and publish the stories that you were finding on the ground? How did your relationship with their propaganda change by force of working with them and being in Iraq over that time? Well, that's an important question and a really good one. Um, it was mostly it was people who uh, were familiar with my reporting and wanted real information from the ground. Hence. Uh, more alternative outlets mm -hmm. or left-leaning art outlets, like I did right. end up freelancing for The Guardian a little bit, for example, uh, but definitely more lefty mm -hmm. outlets in the United States. Uh, and when I did get picked up by something that was a bit more mainstream, for example, I remember one, it wasn't a big radio outlet. It was, it was a, a station back in Alaska where I was living at the time, but it was definitely a mainstream station. And I remember uh, halfway through the interview mm -hmm. talking about the carnage I was seeing on the ground and they just cut, you know, literally dropped my call, just cut me off. So that would happen. No. Right. Right. You know, because it was a time when, you know, war fever was still extremely high and certainly Alaska being a more conservative state, uh, they just didn't want to hear that the occupation was not going well. So I, I would just get cut. That happened a couple of different mm -hmm, mm -hmm. times, but for the most part, I was uh, mm -hmm. you know, it was kind of a self-selected, um, by design of the content that I was producing that people were contacting me mm -hmm. and absolutely wanted to, uh, either print or air what, what I was uh, producing. Mm -hmm. This is the whole, uh, Chomsky self-selection bias coming in here. Mm -hmm. uh, for anybody listening that doesn't know, oh gosh, now I've brought it off. I'm going to have to try and explain it. Um, <laughs> Noam Chomsky, one of our foremost public intellectuals, um, says that, 
uh, journalists do not necessarily self-censor. It's that they have self-selection bias already in place. So if you're going off and working for the New York Times, it's because you're probably the kind of person that the New York Times wants to hire. Um, and that is what kind of frames the perspectives around the stories that get fed to the public. Um, what, in your opinion then, Dar, is the real story of the Iraq war? Do you think that the public, the mainstream public now has reached a general consensus that fits what you saw while you were there and while you were reporting? Or are there still bits of it that left un are left unresolved? Say. In general, the the mainstream population in the United States at least understands that there were WMD was used as a pretext to invade the country illegally simply for oil and for uh, military mm. contractors and contractors like Halliburton and Bechtel, et cetera. And that it was an absolute disaster and uh, produced nothing positive. I think, I think that's become, you know, kind of the general accepted meme, at least in the United States. Uh, that said, I think mm. most people still aren't aware of the fact that over a million Iraqis were killed. Several million were displaced, both internally and externally. And the amount of war crimes mm. and, and real carnage and suffering that happened, I think still most people uh, really don't fathom that part of the story, which is, of course, critical. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's that kind of, you know, terrible othering, um, a, a sort of disinterest um, or un unworldly. Um, what's the one I'm trying to say? An unrealness about things that are going on on the other side of the world to another kind of people. Um, it's funny that you say that, though, because I think in the U in the UK as well, um, the general consensus is that was an illegal war um, and it was done under the pretext of looking for weapons of mass destruction that did not exist. But we still have uh, a war criminal, uh, Tony Blair, our former prime minister, walking about, you know, scot-free, uh, charging hundreds of thousands for consulting or for speeches or for whatever, still being invited by massive international bodies to come and give his opinion on things. So what in your opinion is going on there? Because there is a general consensus and yet that consensus seems to have had no impact on reality as we move forward. Well, ditto to what you just said for George W. Bush, uh, which is of course a mm. thing that someone would want to hear him give a speech, but uh, I mean, at least Tony Blair can speak in complete sentences, but, but I, I digress, but it's the same thing here. <laughs> I mean, every, I, I can't remember the last time the U.S. has had a president that wasn't technically a war criminal. And yet, you know, no mm. one's ever been prosecuted for everything. I mean, we have a former president that literally staged a violent coup attempt in, on national TV and Scott Free will, will, will the way things are going yeah. here politically, likely be president again in 2024. So, so it is that disconnect that you spoke to earlier of uh, even having a lot of the critical information and yet that's still not translating on the ground in a so-called democracy to uh, real change mm. or real justice or real changes in the system. In fact, all, everything's only continued to get worse in, in both of our countries, despite this egregious example mm -hmm. of the, the abject failure in the mainstream media to do their job. And then, of course, uh, the abject failure of the institutions of so-called democracy in our countries to then respond to that. And mm -hmm. I think a big part of the problem is uh, the absolute lack of civil engagement by most people 
in certainly the population in the United States to, you know, sort of a feeling of powerlessness, mm -hmm. perhaps overwhelmed. And certainly at this point in the media of the amount of misinformation, disinformation, and just outright propaganda and over-information that I think uh, at this point, people are just extremely confused or completely apathetic or overwhelmed and are largely just tuning out. Mm. Right. There's a lot to break down in what you've just said. So I'm going to grab a notebook, which should be sitting right here next to me, but isn't. Right. Let's do this. Let's figure it out. Let's put the world to rights. <laughs> okay. So, so we've got mainstream media is not doing its job. Um, other institutions around the world are not doing their job. And right now we're uh, battling with misinformation. So let's go through this piece by piece. What is the job of the media? And how is it that mainstream media, and maybe we should define that as well, is not only failing at fulfilling that job, but perhaps um, contributing to the exact opposite effect? Well, I ideally in a, in a functioning democracy, the job of a journalist in, in the media is to uh, speak truth to power, to monitor the centers of power, to hold them account for what they do and figure out what that is and then report that accurately to the population so that therefore said population can make informed decisions about who they're going to vote for, but also how to become active civically, not just a democracy means you get the vote, but that you can go in, excuse me, and start uh, uh, working to change policies uh, outside of the system as well. So uh, I think that's what the primary job of the media is to have an informed citizenry. It's the bedrock of any functional democracy. And if you have an, a media that's instead, like during the lead up to Iraq, which is a, a great example of um, basically just parroting in this country, what the Bush administration was selling. I mean, you know, you had the famous example, which I, it seems mm -hmm. like you're probably aware of Dick Cheney going on, um, basically, uh, uh, talking with a reporter at the New York times inciting anonymous sources, or, or I'm sorry, she was citing anonymous sources in the U S government saying this and that about, uh, proven facts about weapons of mass destruction in, in Iraq. And then he would he would feed that journalist the source, Judith Miller, uh, and then it oftentimes be the source himself. And then go literally one to three days later, go on national news shows and point, well, look, even the New York Times reported it. And this was done week after week after oh week. It was God, an yeah. integral part in the buildup and the selling of the war. You had, of course, Colin Powell mm. going in front of the UN and holding up the vial of powder and talking about weapons of mass destruction, all of it completely staged, all of it literally just a, a very, very cynical manipulation of the media by outright lies and deceit and, and some other kind of crafty methods like what Cheney did with the New York Times. So if, and then, and then you, you are, when you have a media just not doing the job uh, and, and most of the mainstream media in this country, the New York Times basically being the most reputable paper and the most, uh, you know, respected paper, uh, in, in the country, at least at that time, uh, just not only not doing mm. their job, but doing the opposite, just parroting state propaganda and, and allowing themselves to be used as a tool mm. to perpetuate that propaganda. So if that's the case, mm. I mean, in one sense, you can't blame 
the mainstream population who, if they're not journalists like uh, you are and I was, who, you know, we're, we're triangulating, we're reading international media, you know, we're digging really deep. We're spending hours every day reading the news and the, the average person who's working one or two jobs is simply not doing that. And they just have a very brief exposure to whatever their mainstream media is. It's kind of hard to blame them for just mm -hmm. being ignorant and, and it's not necessarily mm -hmm. their fault. Um, I mean, it is to an extent, but mm -hmm. you can, you can at least understand how that happens. So, um, that is so dangerous because you look at the end product of it is you, you, if you do that for long enough, then you have people literally like what's happened now in this country, a huge percent of the pop percentage of the population literally can't tell a truth from a lie. Uh, and, and now I'm citing the, the big lie where the, the Republican party is perpetuating saying Trump actually won the last election. And that's going to be used as a pretext yeah. so that yeah. in our upcoming midterms and certainly the next presidential election, we're likely to have violence on the street and uh, other really, really nefarious things mm. happen. So the results of uh, propaganda, of the failure of the media, uh, they, as we already discussed, this became deadly in Iraq, over a million dead Iraqis. That is, I would cite directly due to a, an abject failure of the mainstream media in both of our countries. Mm. Right. So I'm wondering whether we should go down the rabbit hole of um, why. why. Why would um, reputable newspapers parrot state propaganda? How is it that we still have state propaganda in you know, the 21st century when we are living in a sort of hyper-connected, data-driven world? It would seem impossible to have state propaganda. Um, it might not be worth going down, though. I think uh, increasingly what we're seeing is that um, the world is not so interesting as to have evil people and good people, but rather people that are merely products of where they come from um, or what they've been exposed to. And with private interests driving the media, with the media existing as another tool of profit maximization, this is my opinion, um, if media exists to maximize profits, then we cannot possibly expect it to A, um, uh, function without ha having relationship to other elite institutions or profit maximizing institutions, um, and then B, hold the public's best interests at heart all the time, because actually it's shareholders' interests who, who come first. What do you think of that? I think you just explained the, the, the fuel of it, of, of really how and why this happens. I mean, because just to kind of wax philosophical for a minute, if, if I can, it's like, mm. if we had, please, for example, with the climate crisis, you know, which I reported on extensively, uh, after my time as a war reporter <clears throat> and if we had a media that was telling the truth about how far along we are in the crisis and, and how much heating, planetary heating is already baked into the system and what that means mm -hmm. uh, and, and the absolute necessity to, to wean ourselves off fossil fuels as rapidly as possible, that capitalism is an abject mm -hmm. failure and that, you know, the whole system mm -hmm. basically doesn't work and our, our own species mm -hmm. is literally in an existential crisis that what media in the mainstream is reporting on it that way. And it's, it's because of what you said, the mm -hmm. said mainstream outlets 
are absolutely dependent on the status quo and things come going as they are and advertising from corporate backers. I mean, one of the best ways to get an idea is if, if anyone watching this, just turn on, for example, I, I'm not sure how it is with the BBC since I live over here, but, but turn on CNN and just watch their, their, their commercials. And you're going to see uh, major mm. pharmaceutical companies. You're going to see oil companies. You're going to see weapons manufacturers like Boeing and McDonnell Douglas and Lock Lockheed Martin. You're going to see commercials. That's who's funding the media. And so we can say the same thing about the yeah. media and the implications of that as we do with politicians here in the United States. Like, you know, we can point to Senator Joe Manchin and say, yeah, he's in the pocket of big coal. Everybody knows that. I mean, mm. even people in the mainstream are aware of that. Uh, it was the same thing with the media. Mm -hmm. who's, paying, who's paying their bills? And so it comes down to that. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you have a media that's heavily funded by big oil, they're not going to go out and report really accurately on how far along we truly are in the climate crisis. And that is a, a very, very dangerous mm -hmm. thing. So then you have mainstream populations mm -hmm. that, well, it's really not that bad of an emergency. I don't really need to adjust my lifestyle. Yeah. I don't need to voluntarily start making sacrifices and stopping flying in airplanes or using yeah. fossil fuels and, and preparing, you know, making decisions about, well, how am I going to take care of my kids in the future? Things like this really important decisions that people aren't even starting to think about because the media is bought and paid for by big business. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about some of the misinformation that flies around with the climate crisis. I'd be really interested to know what you focused on as a, as a climate uh, reporter. Um, I have chosen the beat of climate corruption um, because to me, what is most frightening is the amount of greenwashing and the amount of things that are perpetuated, things that are heralded as the future that are just perpetuations of the system that are driving the crisis. Um, and yet it is so difficult to engage with these things because the minute that you mention capitalism, the C word, uh, the minute that you question uh, economics, or the minute that you question um, essentially, you know, the way of life since the industrial revolution and suggest that we might, we might have to do something else here, people, um, you're seen as radical and it is, it's a catch 22 for cl climate reporters that want to tell the truth and yet will not be able to... <laughs> pay their own bills <laughs> if they just stick to telling the truth. They have to go through the gatekeepers of editors. So, and then just to add on to that, I think the other thing that's very difficult is there are, we, we, ha, we, there are facts. We know what is likely to happen. We know, for example, that there is warming baked in exactly as you said. However, it is not the entire uh, it's not the consensus of the entire scientific community because some scientists are equally bought by um, uh, big oil or fossil fuels or anyone with a vested interest in the status quo. Um, and also, I think that the way that scientists have been trained to communicate information, to find information and communicate information is very different to the... Uh, leaders of the past, where whether it's revolutionaries and activists or politicians today that know how to spin a narrative. And so there's a sort of difficulty, I think, for journalists as well, of digging through masses amount of, of information to essentially interpret that information to get to the truth, because it's not scientists' job to interpret. Whereas beforehand, I feel like journalism has generally been dealing with 
facts that have already been interpreted. And part of our job has been to sniff out the lies, which we're all quite good at. We've all got that sort of gut instinct. But this, this is a different level of complexity. It's not that there are lies. It's that the truth is being communicated in a way that previously hasn't in human history mm -hmm. through decimal points rather than story. That was mm -hmm. a lot. Um, <laughs> so pick a thing in one in that two and a half minutes and we can get into it. No, really, uh, it's <laughs> fascinating points. Uh, again, there's a lot there too. Um, I think the, the thing that comes up listening to much of what you just pointed towards is why I've chosen to do stay on one story for years at a time um, and essentially become an expert mm. on that. I did that during the Iraq war. I did that when I went and covered the BP oil mm. disaster in the Gulf of Mexico for several years. Um, I did it for a lot of the environmental reporting. I did when I was working for Alpha Zero over in Doha. And then I did it for uh, climate, which I started reporting on over there and then continued on up to culminating in writing a book called The End of Ice, very subtle title. Um, but it's a book that really is a culmination of about a decade of climate reportage where I, I did become an expert essentially in tracking glaciers, rainforests, the degradation, all the, all the, you know, obvious signs of the climate crisis over years. And then when I wrote my book, for mm. example, I went, at, I, I chose certain areas to go to and I chose scientists in those areas who had been most of the people I went out into the field with had decades of, uh, intimate experience with the area they were studying. For example, I got to go, uh, out to the mm -hmm. Amazon with Dr. Thomas Lovejoy, who had been studying the Amazon longer than I've been alive. Mm. And so mm. those were my sources. And I did that as a direct, uh, very intentionally because of what you just spoke to that. There's so much disinformation out there. There's, there's climate scientists that are bought and paid for by the fossil fuel industry. There's those who acknowledge the climate crisis, but, uh, you know, consistently downplay the severity of it for whatever reasons, maybe they're only partially funded, you know, or they have their own interests to not be quote unquote alarmist when in reality, we should all be extremely alarmed because. Uh, it's, it, we are literally in a yeah. life and death situation with the planet. Uh, and so yeah. I think because of all that, it's very important. It was very important for me to become so intimate with the topic myself that I knew who was telling the truth and who wasn't. And just like you said, when you come across mm. in this case, a scientist who's really telling the truth, uh, you know, it versus someone who oh, well, you know, it's really not that bad. And, you know, we, we're not really totally sure what's going to mm. happen. And one thing, for example, that made that very easy covering the climate crisis is if you look back at the IPCC uh, future projections from some of their earliest um, reports, uh, the IPCC being the Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And consistently, we are observational reality where we are today and have been for the last uh, more than 10 years has consistently outpaced the worst projections from their reports from the early 1990s to start walking forward. 
that their worst case projections mm. are literally not keeping a pace with observation real observational reality, i.e., what's happening right now. So, um, for example, um, the the last main chapter in my book, The End of Ice, I covered permafrost in the Arctic and methane releases specifically. And I interviewed one of the leading scientists uh, covering uh, permafrost and and uh, both terrestrial and subsea. And uh, he talked about really a catastrophic situation that it's melting. It's even melting tens of meters. It's starting to warm up tens of meters down into the permafrost where we're measuring it around the world. And he's extremely alarmed. And then mm. my book came out in 2019. And then when I was updating the, I was doing a short update on some of the facts for uh, an updated afterward for when the book came out in paper, well, paperback roughly a year and a half later, that same scientist said, oh, well, as bad as things were, um, actually what's happening now, we didn't expect to happen for another 70 years. So that's where we are. And, and, and when you track a story long enough, you see these leaps and, 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 and no, this is an extremely reputable scientist. He's even actually been quoted in some of the bigger, more mainstream populations. They will talk about what he just said there, but they'll, you, they'll cherry pick some of his softer data. So I, I don't know where I'm going with that other than to really say that it's, it's, it's critical for a journalist, I think, to uh, not be parachuting in from story to story like you see in the mainstream media where you're just hitting yeah. talking points that yeah. have already been reported usually by someone else, but really develop yeah. a, a, a knowledge base and an intimacy with the story that you're covering so that basically you know what you're talking about. And, you know, I've been on shows with other people, yeah. for example, when my book came out and if you get into a debate, you're not going to lose because you can cite the sources, the reports and this report came out, but then it was updated with, mm. you know, another report came out or another study. And that's really, really important. And then, and then in that way, um, readers know that they can trust you as a journalist. Mm. We're seeing a lot of that. I think now people like real crusaders, people that want to be journalists and are journalists and want to go back to the tradition of whatever journalism was when it was set up, you know, the fourth estate, mm -hmm. they are leaving. They're leaving publications in order to be able to stay on one story mm -hmm. for a long time. Uh, I interviewed Ian Urbina, who was at the New York Times for 15 years, spoke very highly of them, um, but he left to set up the Open out, uh, open Ocean Outlaw Project, Ocean Outlaw Project, um, essentially because he was like, nobody is covering the oceans. Nobody is covering the oceans. And I, this has to be my beat. I want to do this one thing over and over again. Heated by Emily Atkin, uh, one of the top climate publications in the world, and it's a newsletter. She was the New Republic's uh, climate reporter, and she left to just go and hammer this point home. Um, we are seeing now that it seems like um, mainstream publications, for whatever reason, and I'm not sure why they chose that model of getting journalists to bounce about. It seems um, particularly odd for me that you would not cultivate journalists that have very specific beats and sources that they have developed long-term relationships with that can then get the stories faster than everybody else. It seems like a very, very bad model to move your journalists uh, every six months, essentially. Well, but you already um, spoke as to why that... It just that... means they're starting from scratch. That's uh, interrupting intentionally, if, if, Go on. if I may. Um, you already spoke to Please. why, though, that that, that happened because uh, when you have... Uh, 
a, a news outlet that's funded by uh, corporate powers. And, and then we all know the big squeeze that's happening where, oh, news outlets don't have enough money to fund investigative projects or uh, allow a journalist to stay on one story for that long uh, and send them back repeatedly to cover it. Um, so there's, there's mm. they, money is used by corporate powers. Well, excuse me. Well, let's cut, let's cut that outlet's budget so that they can't afford to do that. And so that's very, very intentional. Mm. And, and it takes money to do that. Yeah. And, and it's, it's harder and harder as time goes by to work for an outlet that, that is going to do that. I mean, you, you know, certainly being in the game, how hard it is to, you know, pitch something to an editor that would require, that means I'm not going to produce anything for six months. You're sending me into the field. I've got a budget <laughs> research, maybe even work yeah. with one or two other people. Uh, how easy is it to find that today? And, and so it, it again, it yeah. comes down to yeah. money. Yeah. Yeah. You see, I, um, I was just, I was hoping that that might not be the truth. I was, <laughs> that vain, you know, little naive part of my brain was like, maybe, maybe it was just a bad model that was created and has kind of run away from itself. Maybe it's not that they are deliberately trying to stop journalists from gaining some form of expertise on the job. Um, but of course it is, it is probably a part of that mm -hmm. um it makes sense to keep people fresh and to keep them moving around if you don't want them to expose the very roots of the structure that hold everything else up including your profit maximizing publication or a tv station um i've been i would like your opinion on something i've been uh, we're, and we're going to wax philosophical here i've been working on a wee theory on a wee idea um uh about sort of what the future of journalism needs to look like and um, how I think that impartiality, this ethic that um, the media was built upon, uh, i.e. to be unbiased, to not have your own opinion, um, how that is completely, it, it's not built for today's world. Um, how journal I think journalists need to be have need to have opinions. They need to be able to broadcast their opinions. And certainly, it's a sort of fallacy to pretend that um, impartiality is the basis upon which good journalism is held, when half of our journalism is completely partisan and a propaganda machine. And therefore, really, it's it's only the left that is vaguely trying to be impartial, so as not to identify like the right. Um, which seems like a very poor position to be in. Like we're going to form ourselves in a way just so that we're not that. Um, it seems to me that when you have the propaganda of the right, you need a sort of equal and opposite force. Um, or, and this is sort of where I'm getting to, I think that what is so powerful about the journalism that we're seeing today coming out of independent journalists, coming from people like Emily Atkin, from Ian Urbina, hell, even people like me with my, <laughs> with my reporting as well, I think what is effective about what we are doing is that we are very transparent about our opinions. So it's not that we pretend to be impartial. We say up front, this is my opinion on this thing. And then that can allow the reader the critical thinking space about whether or not they want to trust how I report on a thing rather than living in this bloody fantasy land that any human being is impartial on any topic and can stop their opinion from filtering into how they report on a topic. I'm really glad that you brought this up specifically. Um, I struggled with the idea of impartiality or in the U.S. it's more commonly referred to as be, be objective uh, early on because mm. that's what that's kind of the zeitgeist that we're all raised in 
oh, the media is supposed to, you're supposed to be objective. And if you're not, then you're not a credible mm -hmm. source. So you're biased as though that's a bad mm -hmm. thing. And I really struggled with it, even well mm -hmm. into my Iraq reporting. And uh, fortunately, fairly early on in that reporting, I actually got to have dinner with both Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky together and, and asked them <laughs> about this. <laughs> and, and they basically took me to school. And Howard Zinn, of course, being the historian, walked through, well, here's, here's where that myth of objectivity came from. And he walked me through starting how uh, in the early 20th century in the United States, you, in any, any given city would have multiple papers. There would be an entertainment paper, a labor paper, a business paper, a sports paper, a society paper. And so anyone who read any of those knew uh, you're gonna, you're getting a very, very specific, um, reporting on this particular topic. But then as the conglomeration of media mm. commenced, you know, at, you know, start walking the clock forward. And as corporate power started to buy up different media outlets and put more of those papers under the same roof now, okay, you're, you're now not just the business reporter and the war reporter, you're going to go back and forth to both because we're cutting jobs. And so the myth of objectivity was born so that you could put that hat on and then co go cover these different things. And, and, and that's of course only continued and worsened to this day. And another example that I think Chomsky at the time brought up is he said, well, if you're, if, if we had objectivity during world war two, then, uh, if you're going to cover what Hitler said or, or, or like what the allies said during the war, then you need to go cover what Hitler said and give it equal weight. And, and therefore treat him as though he's yeah. the same player and it's the same thing. And so it's another way to look at it is, is, uh, the second I choose as a journalist, for example, to report on this story and not that story, there goes my objectivity, right? That's, yeah. that's a choice. Totally. And yeah. the second I choose to write in English and not Spanish or another language, there, there goes my objectivity again. And, and we can apply that to every decision we yeah. make on every story, you know, the, the decision I make to interview this person and not that person. So the whole, when you start to look at it that way, it's very clear and very simple that, i.e. it is impossible for any human being to be truly objective about anything. It's literally impossible. Mm -hmm. And yet we're gonna have entire news outlets in an entire industry, i.e. the mainstream media in your country and my country that is going to pretend to be objective Again, that, that's, it, 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 it becomes mm -hmm. laughable when you look at it through that lens that, mm -hmm. um, and, and that's very different than being fair and being honest and being very accurate. But I feel certainly when I was working as a journalist, absolutely beholden to if someone was lying to call that out and say, you know, they said this, mm -hmm. but the facts are this period. And, and, and mm -hmm. when are you going to see that in say the New York times? I mean, it might be done in sort of a softer way at best, but usually that's not even done. It's like, we're going to have this, this person said this, and then here's the counter opinion. I, as though there's only two sides, as you pointed to earlier, mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. but you mm -hmm. start to see where mm -hmm. it, the whole system doesn't work kind of like capitalism. And yet everybody keeps adhering to mm -hmm. it anyway, even though at this stage of the game, it's very clear we are in a nosedive and the ground is approaching very rapidly. Mm-hmm.
I'm, you were talking there and you made me think of the New York Times. It's funny how often they come up in these conversations because I think they are sort of seen as, for the uninitiated, that is the, the newspaper of the world. It is the most reputable paper in the world. Um, and for the initiated, it is the example of the, the shining example of how um, different motives uh, are controlling our media landscape and the impact that it has on their reporting. I know that Chomsky is a big fan of calling them out and using them in his example as data ex uh, analysis and examples. Um, I had a go at them too myself recently uh, for their reporting over um, Patagonia's recent decision to hand over their its company to the trust um, and therefore the founder no longer being a billionaire. And like the fact that this reporter completely ignored any and all investigations that had been done that had been published in their own paper after I published it in The Intercept um, about the failed initiatives um, that Patagonia has funded that have led to some companies being sued over greenwashing claims. No mention of this. And then today, and I'm bringing it up, um, and it's not even particularly relevant, but I'm bringing it up because I'm annoyed again, because this afternoon I saw that they published an article about these laws that are coming into place um, in, to sort of protect the climate from the fashion industry. And again, again, just sort of uh, spouting. It's like a PR puff piece for these laws and these people that are doing the right thing for the planet. And no facts mentioned of uh, historical re reporting done by me and other reporters that prove that these, this legislation has been built using a tool that is founded on no scientific basis and again is the same thing that is um, seeing other companies sued around the world for claims of greenwashing and it's like oh god you know you've got sort of the liberal metropolitan elite <laughs> to pull a phrase from the, the, the right wingers in the UK you've got the liberal metropolitan elite reading the New York Times, people that do have access to power, people that think they're good people and want to do well in the world and do have access to power or spaces or decision-making or whatever. And that is what they're getting fed. They're getting fed such misinformation that even those who have their hearts in the right place, say, will never be able to do uh, the correct thing because they don't know what that is. Um, and it seems to me, if we were to label our journalists, say, listen, this journalist believes X, Y, and Z. For journalists to say, listen, I'm left-wing or I'm right-wing or I'm this or I'm that. And this is, you know, I have, um, I, I hold shares in Patagonia, for example, or whatever. Um, same as with our politicians. It could be incredibly helpful. Then we would know how to critically approach their pieces. And same with the papers and whoever holds shares in those, rather than pretending, as you so brilliantly laid out, that objectivity exists when it fundamentally cannot. I mean, come on, the French sorted that out in the 1960s. Let's catch up, people. Mm -hmm. and, and then the question is, how long do we keep pretending? You know, uh, we uh, as, mm. as, as, as societies, how long do we keep pretending that, that capitalism works? How long are we going to keep pretending that there is such yeah. a thing as objectivity? How long are we going to keep pretending that yeah. we're not in... Uh, runaway climate crisis that is an existential threat, and 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 it yeah. it does seem to me though that it is becoming increasingly hard to continue that pretending when systems are little literally collapsing. I mean, the UK is in massive crisis, mm -hmm. the United States massive crisis. Yeah. You know, these countries 
theoretically are seen as, you know, the leaders of the Western world in, in a lot of ways. And, and, in reality is, uh, neither countries, I would argue confidently, uh, even a democracy anymore. I mean, we're, we're a corporatocracy at best, uh, and, and this country is going straight into fascism and these, these are really the end results of societies that have gone along with the status quo that's gone further and further into kind of a corporate mindset with everything and extremely cynical, but we're living now Mm -hmm. in what happens in countries where there's not legitimate journalism in the mainstream. Mostly there, you know, with, with two exceptions aside, uh, there's not, and has not been enough legitimate journalism in the mainstream. And so you end up with a society that's Mm -hmm. uh, overwhelmed with information. It, 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 It certainly in the United States, Huge swaths of the country can't even tell truth from fiction, which is something that uh, Hada Arendt mm-hmm. in Origins of Totalitarianism warned as the most, mm. the best subject for totalitarian rule is, is not someone with a certain political bias, but someone who literally just can't tell truth from fiction anymore. And because of the abject failure of mm. our medias, we have in the U.S. Uh, in the last election, I mean, uh, almost half the country voted for for Trump, uh, and this is a person who it it's yeah. literally can't u- utter a sentence without a lie being in it, if not several. And and yet people yeah. really yeah. think that that's that's true, and that is an extremely worrisome prospect. Now looking forward, especially all the crises that are upon us, whether it's climate crisis, economic crisis, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fascist mm-hmm. crisis go mm-hmm. down the line. So, um, but these, mm-hmm. this is really the end product of, and this is why I got into journalism in the first place, because I, um, perhaps naively, certainly idealistically believe that if you give people good information, then they'll make the right choice. And I think that that was yeah. at least sort of true. Uh, several decades ago in the United States, but I think now, given the runaway nature of the media and infotainment and and um, uh, all the problems that we've discussed so far, that you now have a dominant mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mainstream society that looks more and more like that in Orwell's 1984. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it is enough to to discuss just the facts anymore. Um, I collaborate with some really awesome people in the United Kingdom that are all working on power of stories. What is a story? How do we construct a story? How do we construct the myth that will allow people to engage with the facts in a way that they just haven't particularly wanted to um, or have been overwhelmed by such disinformation that the facts are not appealing or are drowned in the in the wave? Um, I think that there has to be, I don't know, you have to, you have to, I don't know, we, we have to rebuild our relationships, right? We have to rebuild our relationships with each other, with our democracies, with our media, with the planet, with our, our systems. We have to consider ourselves to not be victims of the age that we live in, but uh, creators of the future uh, for f- future generations that are going to deserve a healthy and healthy planet. Um, how we do that and whether or not we have enough time, this is a thing, right? Like, do we have enough time? Probably not. Does that mean that we stop trying? No. <laughs> but I would be very, and before we go into your book, which I'm really, really keen to, because there was something in it that was just amazing. But I would be really keen if you could sort of say to listeners, like, what are the main things that you think we are 
uh, misreporting on uh, in the mainstream media concerning the climate crisis? Like, what flags should readers be looking for when they're purveying the news in the brief half hour they have for that every morning? Say, oh boy, where to start? <laughs> um, it's a, it's a, cha <laughs> a challenge of narrowing it down. Um, well, first, I would say yeah. again something that we touched on earlier that the fact of how much heating is already baked into the system. The fact that if all CO2 emissions on the planet stopped on a dime tonight, that 93% of all the heat that humans have generated has gone into the oceans. Uh, it's enough heat that if the oceans hadn't mm. absorbed it, our land temperatures would be a hundred degrees hotter globally than they are right now. So that's a mm. lot of energy in the oceans. So any ice touching the oceans, i.e. the Arctic ice cap, uh, ice shelves down in the Antarctic, uh, many of the um, ocean terminating glaciers around the globe, those are ticking time bombs. Uh, and that's literally a phrase used by Eric Rigno, one of the leading glaciologists down in the Antarctic said, uh, the fuses have already been lit. The question is just when do that all the bombs go off mm. instead of stopping it. So i.e. all that ice is mm. uh, eventually going to be water. And, and then how that translates into sea level rise. And essentially what it means is that every major mm. coastal city on the planet is going to have to be uh, evacuated, moved, or abandoned to the sea. And think about what that means as far as population displacement, as far as the global economy, as far as uh, toxic waste problems going into oceans, as far as nuclear power plants. Yeah. Yeah. All of this is, 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 is going underwater, period. And if you simply look at what mm. scientific studies have been put out by leading glaciologists, like the person I just mentioned, uh, who's usually cited in New York Times articles from Antarctica, yet they won't talk about what he says about ticking time bombs and, you know, the, the fact that all of this is baked into the system. Instead, we can perpetuate, you know, greenwash that and perpetuate myths that, oh, somehow we can still avert the climate crisis or make it go away. Um, and, and reality is, um, that's, well, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'm going to pause that thought. So sea level rise, how much you've mm -hmm. already baked into the system. Um, um, that means the Arctic ice cap is, is, is going to melt. The only question is when, how many more years do we have it still, fr uh, frozen through the summers? Uh, and then. Uh, the other really big issue is methane release, uh, not just from fossil fuels, not mm. from big ag, but what's already be releasing up in the Arctic from le uh, lakes coming up from underneath lakes as, as the permafrost under the lakes across the Arctic, the circumpolar Arctic, uh, is, are, are thawing out as well as subsea. We already have massive amounts of methane that's mm -hmm. releasing, and that's actually accelerating the amount of uh, permafrost thaw, and then methane coming from it. And um, methane, of course, in a 10-year time scale is 85, more time, 85 times more potent of a greenhouse gas than is CO2. I think, I think these things as well, and, and then one other part of this is um, the, the amount of like hope that people have getting into the greenwashing, or maybe it won't be as bad, or maybe if we plant a whole bunch of trees, this could happen, or maybe if we can get governments to um, make more dramatic CO2 reduction commitments over shorter time spans, um, 
that's a very, very common thing across the political spectrum, but especially across the left, certainly here in the United States. And I would ask those people, mm -hmm. uh, what do you see in corporate power or the government that lends you to believe that any of that's going to happen? That even in the most recent so-called mm -hmm. climate bill that the Biden administration passed here, there's massive amounts of oil leases, uh, pipeline infrastructure, uh, uh, nods to the fossil fuel industry, concessions, i.e. there is nothing to indicate that these people, as long as they keep making the money that they're making today and every day, that they're going to make these dramatic changes in policy that would actually give us a real shot at not stopping, but mitigating and, and adapting to the new planet mm -hmm. that we're already living on and that certainly that's coming uh, yeah. towards us very, very fast. So there's really just nothing yeah. to indicate that. Yeah. So that's really hard to hear. It's, it's difficult to process. I, I was, you know, as I was working as a journalist, I was, you know, I, when I worked at Jazeera and was writing these really intense climate stories, my nickname was Darmageddon. Uh, so, uh, it's mm -hmm. definitely for telling the truth, you know, and, and now, uh, yeah. even my book into bias, which came out in 2019 and, um, many people like one of the critiques of the book was, oh, well, Jamal always goes to the worst case scenarios. And I would say now, based on mm -hmm. scientific studies, that book didn't go far enough. Um, even though I was pointing to the yeah. worst case scenarios, but things have accelerated so much that, you know, it, the book's almost out of date at this point. And so that's how fast things are changing. So yeah, I would say, yeah, yeah. um, I, I, I'm sorry if I didn't stay on one thread for all of that, but it, I just, no, it's critical that people understand the gravity of the situation, not because we're trying to depress you or we're trying to be right or anything like this, but only if you see the gravity of the situation, can you make good decisions for yourself, the people that you love and care about and, and what actions you want to take. And, uh, that's, mm. again, this is back to what's the whole reason of journalism. And if people don't have the facts and understand the reality happening that they're living in, um, how are you going to behave responsibly? and make good decisions and put yourself in a position where, yeah, this is what I think I need to decide to do. Like whatever that might be, whether you want to go become an activist or no, I, it's clear. I just need to try to figure out how to grow my own food, uh, or, or, or something in between. I mean, whatever, whatever the case may be, but that starts with having a fundamental understanding of this is what's actually happening. And, and that is the challenge now mm -hmm. where, um, and I'll, I'll just say, uh, I, one of the reasons I decided to step out of journalism is the media landscape has become so utterly fragmented at this point that I think one of the biggest challenges upon us is getting people, even on the same side of a political spectrum, to really see eye to eye on the fundamentals of reality. I mean, I was talking to some friends about this yesterday yeah. and it's like, how much longer do we get before there's going to be debates on gravity? You know, I mean, things are really fragmenting yeah. so yeah. rapidly. That's a very, very real problem. But that means if you're a journalist or if you're mm. looking to get into journalism, it's never been more important 
to have really good journalism, fact-based, uh, uh, impassioned, writing about what you really, really care about and doing a really, really good job so that that mm -hmm. information is out there, whoever might be able to access it. Absolutely. That is a beautiful, I think, moment to tie a bow on our conversation about journalism. Before I let you go, I would love for us to talk about uh, your new book. Um, I The title has just slipped out of my head, but the thing that I loved um, reading around it was about this idea that in all of the stories that you collated from these indigenous peoples, it was because they have literally seen their climate and their environment collapse re very recently in the last few hundred years due to colonialism and the impacts that that had on their their lands. Could you could you tell us about it? Sorry, the yeah, name no, no problem. So here's the book. It's called We Are the Middle of Forever, and I co-edited it with uh, Stan mm -hmm. Rushworth, uh, who taught Native American literature and critical thinking for about. Uh, several decades and we interviewed 20 different indigenous people and the book was born of uh understanding how far along we are in the climate crisis and then seeing the the rampant despair across the united states of within people who were coming to my book talks for the end of bias my climate book and we realized one thing we could do as a service was talk about people who've already been through this and uh, been through this as far as, as you touched on, um, if we talk about abrupt climate change, uh, and, and what that means for populations. Well, if you want to talk about abrupt climate change, tank, for example, the Chiricahua Apache from Southern New Mexico and Northern Mexico and move them literally on a train to uh, a reservation in South Florida, that's abrupt climate change, right? And you can apply that to mm. hundreds of different tribes across the country. And, and then the genocide and the erasure and the residential schools and, and uh, the church's role in this, all of these afflictions put upon indigenous populations here, and we're still here. And, and now, certainly within the left in the United States, they're being turned to now to try to show us a way forward through the climate crisis and through these other crises. So that's the books, 20 different people talking about different aspects of that. And it gets, it's the books really strong medicine. Mm -hmm. I feel like it, it certainly Stan and I, who, who did the interviews and, and edited the book and wrote up the chapters, it really is, is ballast for these stormy times. And it really put both our feet really, really firmly on the ground, listening to these people. And I think one of the core themes of the book is that no matter how bleak the future looks or how intense the current situation is, that uh, we have an obligation to keep doing the right thing, whatever it is. Uh, we don't do it for a certain result. We don't do it uh, for, uh, to try to attain something or to win. We do it because we're obliged to do it. And, and that is a very indigenous perspective in general. And uh, that has been extremely helpful for me personally. And that's something I definitely wanted to mention so that anybody watching or listening to this, um, I, that's a fallback for me when I read too much news and get extremely depressed or angry about what's happening. Um, I have to remember that no matter what, I have obligations to serve, whether it's you working as a journalist or, mm. or 
whoever watching this, doing whatever you do, um, if we approach it as a, a service opportunity to towards other people and towards other species, regardless of the outcome, then um, that's extremely helpful and very important, I think. Di, thank you so much. That was absolutely beautiful. What an important note, I think, to end on. Um, my final question for you is, who would you like to platform? And I might not have asked you to prepare this. Did I in my email? You asked me to think about it. And I would offer Richard Heinberg. Are you familiar with his work? I've had him. Okay. I've had him. You have to think of somebody else. <laughs> okay. Then a, a fallback. I, I did think of a fallback because I, I, I actually am not surprised that you had him. Okay. So my fallback would be Derek Jensen, the author. Derek Jensen. Yeah. Okay. Great. I will get him on. Di, this has been fascinating and stimulating. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Great conversation. Thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about Dar's work and read his books, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly essays inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.